Welcome to WMNF 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. You're listening to the Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. Last week, the three-day trial it was happened in Andrew Warren versus Ron DeSantis. We're going to talk about that later in the show. We're going to bring in a law professor from Stetson University College of Law to talk about Warren versus DeSantis. And I want to also talk about some other state and local news. But first, we're going to hear the story about Tampa's police chief, Mary O'Connor, who resigned yesterday. And that resignation stems from the release of body cam footage from when she was a passenger in a golf golf cart without a tag by Pinellas County deputy last month. In a few seconds, we're going to talk to the reporter who requested this body cam footage. Here's Mary O'Connor. Is your camera on? It is. I'm the police chief in Tampa. Oh, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Okay. I'm hoping that you'll just let us go tonight. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I'll say, uh, not just say I, I, you look familiar, so. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I do. Okay. So, all right, folks. Well, uh, have a good night. Well, joining us now is Justin Garcia, a reporter with Creative Loafing Tampa. Welcome back to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Justin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad you could come on. Uh, this is quite literally you and your dog I see in the background. Pedro. <laughs> cool. Hey, Pedro. Um, I'm sh- so I'm sure you don't want to reveal specifics about your sources, but what can you tell us about how you learned that this was going to be a story that you should pursue? Yeah, so initially I had two anonymous sources telling me kind of conflicting information about what happened. Um, and I had to kind of sort through that and narrow down the date. Uh, I will give credit to the PCSO public information officer. Um, Pinellas County Sheriff. Yeah, yeah. They kind of worked with me to narrow down the information because initially one person was saying it was the day before it happened. One person was saying the actual day it happened. We didn't have an exact time frame initially, um, but we were able to narrow it down by looking through calls and stuff like that that occurred uh, in that area because we knew the general area of where it happened. Uh, but even then, uh, initially, PCSO said they couldn't find it. They closed my request. Um, I asked one of my anonymous sources and they said, I'm sure it happened. So I, I asked PCSO to reopen the request. They did. Uh, and then I gained a few more details that I was able to kind of hone in on. And that's when um, eventually after they had closed the request, after they told me to go talk to Clearwater Police Department, which I did um, to make sure it wasn't them. Then uh, finally they came back and said, hey, um, we actually did find this. And that was on Wednesday of last week. And that was the same day that O'Connor informed Caster that the video was going to come out. And then O'Connor showed Caster the video the next day after I received the video. So, And if I can take it from there, around that same time that you received a video from Pinellas County Sheriff's Office is about the time that Tampa police released it to the public. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, what, I, what took... What took the, the city of Tampa, the, the mayor, the police chief, so long to come forward with this, especially once they realized that it, it was probably going to go public? They, they knew you were fishing around for it, that, they, that you were looking for this footage. At least the Pinellas County Sheriff knew. Um, what, what, do you think that they released it quickly or do you think that there was a, um, kind of a time lag there? Um, So, yeah, they let me know last Wednesday that they had found the video based on the information I gave them. I had that in an email. And then they told me that there was going to be a delay in releasing it of about 24 hours because they had to do some redactions. That's what they said, at least. And so I said, okay, I can wait until tomorrow. 
Um, so while I was waiting, you know, I was kind of anxious thinking, you know, am I the first person to get it? So I reached out to them and said, hey, let me know if I'm the first person to get this period, you know, because they said we haven't released this to any media outlets. So I was like, am I the first person to get this at all? And they said yes. And when they released it to me, that was about, I would say about 30 minutes before TBD put out their press release about it. So I've now put in a uh, public records request to PCSO to see if they talked to TPD at all in that time frame. You know, uh, a major concern for a lot of people, I think, was that this did happen on November 12th. And uh, in the police internal affairs report, uh, O'Connor says that she told Castor about it on the 30th. So if that's true, why did she wait 18 days if she felt so bad about it? Right. Um, that's that's a big kind of red flag in that situation. Um, and I'm still trying to put the pieces together if the video was released to TPD without TPD even making a public records request, or if O'Connor contacted uh, PCSO to get the video. Um, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. I've put in a few public records requests to try to piece some of that together. Our guest is Justin Garcia. He's a reporter with Creative Loafing Tampa, and he had unearthed the body cam vid- video that essentially led to the resignation yesterday of Tampa's police chief, Mary O'Connor. So we're speaking to him about the process and you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan. So it's it seems like based on the timeline that you're laying out that Mayor Castor might not have known about this until the day before the police, uh, the, the body cam footage went public. So it sounds like it was the police chief herself who was kind of sitting on the information that she got pulled over and seems to have used a, a favor to, to kind of uh, get off from getting a ticket or, or whatnot. Um, how does that square in this in the whole investigation of whether she would lose her job yesterday or not? Um, so I will say that's what the city is saying happened. You're never sure that that happened, especially as a journalist, until you get some information confirming it. That's why I've made the public records request to see if um, I've made a request to see if Mario on those two days last week, Wednesday and Thursday, if Mary O'Connor talked to anybody on Castor's staff or to Castor herself just to confirm those facts, you know. Um, I think what played into her resignation was, you know, this this story, even though this is some of the less egregious behavior that I've kind of caught TPD in and Mary O'Connor participating in, um, this story, just the, the aesthetics of it, you know, the visual of the, the deputy walking up and saying, hey, what's going on tonight? They're obviously doing something illegal. It's at the minimum a, a traffic violation. And she just uses her badge to get out of it, you know, for a lot of for a lot of people who um, have experienced, you know, disproportionate uh, targeting by the police. Um, that looks very unfair, right, to use your privilege to, to get out of that. And so I think that's why it went viral, why it became international news is because it kind of speaks to a larger issue of police using their status to get out of situations. And, you know, so they talked about it on CNN actually live and an ex-sergeant on CNN live said, yeah, we do that all the time, just kind of openly admitted and bragged about it. And so it speaks to this larger issue within police culture, as they call it. Our guest is Justin Garcia, a reporter with Creative Loafing Tampa. You're listening to WMNF Tampa, 88.5 FM, WMNF.org. And Justin, you know, one of the things that that some people were surprised about when they saw this video is that it, it became widely known that the city of Tampa's police chief 
didn't even live in Tampa. She didn't even live in Hillsborough County. Uh, do you think that, that any of that uh, blowback was, was something significant? Yeah, I think that was that, that's definitely something of concern. I will say that this is a uh, common practice in Tampa and the leaders of Tampa. I have a short list of some of the people who help run the city who don't live here, who seem to have no intentions of living here. I don't want to assume, but um, one thing, though, is I'm pretty sure and, um, you know, I want to confirm this, but I'm pretty sure Mary O'Connor has two properties in the Tampa Bay area. One is um, over there in Oldsmar area and the other one is in the Bayshore area. And uh, there are other uh, city leaders who kind of do the same thing. And then therefore you can claim that you live at two places, you know, and people are allowed to do that. So I don't think that played as much of a factor as just the the national and international news of look at this cop using her badge to get out of this situation that was obviously an, a violation. Um, so, yeah. We have uh, someone who wrote in who asks, what does he make of the fact, meaning Justin, what do you make of the fact that the Tampa police chief knew she was being recorded, yet she flashed her bag anyway, badge that is anyway, and she gave the business card. This is something we didn't hear on the audio we just played, but she handed the business card to the deputy and said, hey, look, if there's anything you need, let us know. So is do you think that that's a, something that was significant in this video? Yeah, definitely. I mean, kind of like we talked about a little bit ago, it talks that that speaks to the police culture, right? That just saying, hey, you you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. Take my card. I'm serious. Anything you need, right? I'll take care of you, basically. That's another big question. You know, I asked uh, PCSO the next day. I said, um, what about Deputy Jacoby? You know, he didn't follow protocol and he heard that she was a police chief. And he said, all right, we'll have a good night then. See you later. Take care, guys. Um, and PCSO said that he's not being reprimanded. So, you know, you have uh, Chief O'Connor resigning because she's the subject of this video. Deputy Jacoby isn't even being reprimanded. I will say, too, that Keith O'Connor, who was actually driving the golf cart, right? He's the head of code enforcement in Tampa. So you have the head of code of Tampa who who manages a very important aspect of Tampa city government, who doesn't lay his head in the city of Tampa, you know? And I will say at the beginning of that video, he seems a little out of sorts. I'm not sure what was going on. I don't want to get too far into conjecture, but um, that is concerning too. Our guest is Justin Garcia, reporter with Creative Loafing Tampa. You kind of alluded to this earlier in the in your in this interview, but there were signs before she was even hired that Mary O'Connor might be a risky choice for for Tampa police chief. And yet, um, even though people brought this up before she was hired, it seems that Tampa Mayor Jane Castor kind of um, just really bulldozed this this nom- her nomination through, or or however the, whatever the term would be. Um, so, what were some of those signs? Yeah, so there was a previous arrest in the 90s um, when Keith O'Connor, well, he was not her husband yet. Her name was Mary Minter at the time. They were pulled over. Keith was arrested for a DUI. Mary uh, kind of freaked out and punched a Hillsborough County Sheriff's deputy, um, kicked the windows of the car, all this stuff. And uh, when Castor held a sudden press conference and just announced that Mary O'Connor was a police chief back in February without city council approval, without going through the process. She said she's starting the job today. You know, I looked her up and I found that and I reached out to the city's communications director and I said, 
that's not good, right? And you know, he was like, oh, people already know about that. But then we put it out there again, and people were like, oh, a lot of people said I didn't know about this, you know. And that was a big red flag, you know. I will say that Mary O'Connor later on with our reporting, we got a bunch of documents from um, uh, the Crime Free Multi Housing Program, which is now known as uh, Renting While Black, and the Stop and Frisk Program, now known, now known as Biking While Black. And Mary O'Connor was involved in both of those programs. She helped oversee them. So did Castor too. So those are red flags to us as well. And we were kind of raising those red flags. Meanwhile, some powerful entities in the area, like even the Times wrote an editorial saying that they should just appoint, city council should just appoint Mary O'Connor just to get get on with it, you know? Um, so th there was a lot of kind of, like you said, kind of just pushing her into that position while there were concerns from council, concerns from a lot of local leaders as well. Well, Justin, I've kept you on longer than I promised, but is there anything else that our listeners should know or any angles to this story that they might be uh, hearing from you in the next few days? Uh, yeah, I'm putting in a lot of uh, public information requests just to kind of see the backstory of what happened here, how it all played out. You know, uh, one of our jobs as journalists is to, you know, hear what uh, what people in power are saying and always just make sure we're, make, we're, we're making sure to double check that that's true and everything is accurate. So, There'll be more to come in the in the days coming up for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Justin. Yep, thank you for having me. I appreciate you coming on. That was Justin Garcia, a reporter with Creative Loafing Tampa. It was his reporting that led to the release of body cam footage of the Tampa police chief and eventually to her resignation. So we'll be right back after this very short music break from Irish rock legends that I picked out for Justin. Here's some Thin Lizzy. Oh, uh bit of Thin Lizzy on WMNF Tampa. This is the Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and thanks to our first guest, Justin Garcia. And don't forget that our next topic in just a bit is going to be a law professor to talk about last week's trial, Andrew Warren versus Ron DeSantis. But first, we're going to hear about some other statewide news. Florida lawmakers are meeting in Tallahassee in a couple of weeks to work on the state's crippled property insurance market, which took another blow after Hurricane Ian destroyed thousands of homes in September. And Valerie Crowder reports on what lawmakers make do as insurers leave the markets and homeowners are paying more for coverage. No draft legislation has been filed ahead of the upcoming session, but new GOP House Speaker Paul Renner recently offered reporters a few clues about what lawmakers might do to stabilize the state's property insurance market. I think we're going to look at the kitchen sink, frankly, of options and look forward to hearing from all of the members in the House as well as the Senate. And once we do that, it's important for people listening to know that that will not result in an overnight drop in insurance rates. 
Renner says any measures lawmakers pass won't drive down rates for at least a couple of years. He says the Republican supermajority in the legislature will also face tough choices when it comes to putting more public dollars into reinsurance, which insurers rely on to cover their losses. When you have a market that is challenged, I think it's fair to say, you have to consider things that I, as a conservative, would not wish to do, which is put up some of our reserves to backstop the private market. And the situation is dire. Six private insurance companies have left the state so far this year, and more than a couple dozen others are on the brink of running out of funds. The Insurance Information Institute is a nonprofit that researches industry trends. The Institute's Florida spokesman Mark Friedlander says the average price of premiums in the state went up by 33 percent this year, and that number is expected to rise to above 40 percent next year. And there's a variety of factors there, the continuing issues of litigation abuse and roof claim abuse combined with hurricane Ian losses combined with the higher cost of reinsurance. Data from the state's Office of Insurance Regulation shows 76 percent of the nation's homeowners lawsuits against insurance companies are filed in Florida. Yet the state accounts for 8 percent of all claims in the U.S. Friedlander says the insurance industry wants lawmakers to end what's known as one-way attorney's fees, which property insurance companies are required to pay any time they lose their case. Florida is very liberal when it comes to those fees compared to other states. So as a result, once again, it's an incentive to sue insurers, which we don't have in other states because of much stricter regulations. Friedlander says last year there were 116,000 lawsuits filed in Florida against insurers. That estimate for this year was 130,000, but that was before Hurricane Ian. Friedlander says with so many lawsuits in the pipeline, the market is unlikely to stabilize anytime soon. Any changes in the laws will not impact any lawsuits that have already been filed. So you've got to work your way through the system. Sometimes lawsuits could take several years to play out in the court system. So nothing is going to change immediately. In fact, we anticipate rates for Florida homeowners will continue to increase into the coming year. House Speaker Renner recently told reporters lawmakers could consider ending one-way attorney's fees when they meet later this month. Yeah, I mentioned the kitchen sink. That's that's in the sink of uh, things we're going to discuss. I don't think any decisions have been made, but it's certainly one that people point to as Florida being a bit of an outlier in, in how we operate. Another big issue lawmakers could address is the growing number of homeowners getting their coverage through the state-backed insurer of last resort. Citizens Property Insurance Corporation has been growing at a rapid pace as rates go up in the private market. Former state senator Jeff Brandis has been a major champion for property insurance reform for years. The big problem Citizens has is that it's a predatory competitor. Their prices are not set by actuaries, they're set by politicians. Brandis says citizens' rates generally range from between 30 and 50 percent below market value, depending on where a piece of property sits. He says capping the rapid growth of new citizens' policies is among the issues that lawmakers must address to help the market. Brandis was in office when lawmakers met earlier this year with the goal of fixing the insurance market. He says they fell short. They frankly didn't do enough. They, they knew what they needed to do. But they were unwilling, to, because of politics and because of an election year, to do the things necessary in order to truly fix the market. They no longer have that option to wait and to punt.
They have kicked the can so far down the road, we're out of road. And Brandis says the problem is so big and so complex that he doubts lawmakers will have time to fully address it during the upcoming week-long special session. But I just don't know that the legislature is going to be able to tackle all of these things in one week in a way that they need to. There's just so much. This is the challenge. You know, this this patient is very sick and needs multiple surgeries in order to, to survive. Brandis says he wouldn't be surprised if lawmakers try to tackle the biggest issues later this month. But he says they'll need to follow up with more solutions when they meet again in March for the 60-day regular session. I'm Valerie Crowder. Well, you're listening to WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. You're listening to the Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're going to turn now to last week's trial Warren versus DeSantis. In August, Governor Ron DeSantis suspended the elected state attorney in Hillsborough County, Andrew Warren. And then Warren sued DeSantis. There was a three-day trial last week in Tallahassee. Warren's challenge is on First Amendment grounds. DeSantis's executive order focuses on how Warren signed statements from prosecutors around the nation pledging that they won't pursue criminal cases against people who seek or provide abortions or gender transition treatment. Warren says the governor used the powers of his office to suppress criticism and promote cronyism. We don't have audio from inside the courtroom, so we'll have to rely on the print reports of what's been said. Joining us right now by Zoom is Louis Varelli, a professor of constitutional law at Stetson University College of Law in Gulfport. Welcome back to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Professor Varelli. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you could come on to talk about this important case. So the governor suspended the elected state attorney. This is something we've known for a few months now, but just maybe to start with that point, how common is it for a governor to suspend an elected official? It's very unusual. Um, there are a few recent examples of Governor DeSantis doing this, but they're overwhelmingly connected with criminal charges or the kinds of really extreme circumstances one would expect. The standard for suspension under the Florida Constitution is a very high bar, and that's in part because the people being suspended are elected officials. And as a general matter, um, the removal or the the prevention of an elected official from doing their the job they were elected to do is meant to be a very rare occurrence, and that's true here too. So if is there recourse? Are there checks and balances? Once someone gets suspended, is there any way that they can challenge that? Well, we're seeing it, right? You can challenge it in the courts, and the standard would generally be that the governor has overstepped um, his or her bounds under the Florida Constitution. Um, that's going to be a large part of the conversation surrounding um, State Attorney Warren, but of course there's a First Amendment claim in his case as well. Before the trial even started, the both sides weighed in on whether on who would be able to testify. And Warren wanted the governor to testify, to tell him and to tell the public why Warren was suspended. And the governor said he didn't want to, to testify during the trial. And the judge sided with the governor. What do you make of, of that decision by the judge? Well, I think it was a re- it was a reasonable and and. Um an important request to have the governor testify. And I mean, the First Amendment claim is going to depend largely on the governor's intent and what was going through the governor's mind when he chose to suspend Andrew Warren and why. Um, but it's also not unusual for judges to be cautious about having any elected official testify against their will, especially um, someone with the rank of governor. So what the judge did in the case was say, um, I'm not going to require the governor to testify necessarily, but if something comes up during the trial where I change my mind, I reserve the right to do that. The judge did not change um, their mind and uh, Governor DeSantis ultimately did not testify, but lots of people close to him were allegedly with knowledge or with this ostensibly with knowledge of what he was thinking when he made this decision did testify. So we should have some pretty good information for the judge to consider in that regard. 
Our guest is Louis Varelli, a professor of constitutional law at Stetson University College of Law. You're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. And we are talking about the Andrew Warren versus Ron DeSantis trial that happened last week in Tallahassee. During that trial, an attorney who represents DeSantis said that Andrew Warren's actions were in the role of a policymaker and should not be considered a First Amendment violation. So what does the law and precedent talk, tell us about that, that uh, statement? This is a common sort of um, line drawing exercise that we do in First Amendment claims. So the First Amendment protects speech. It does not protect conduct. And that's um, sort of a rough way of describing how a lot of these disputes um, occur. Um, Andrew Warren is claiming, and I think has a pretty compelling case, that signing a letter is a form of speech. Um, we're to, we're, we are to remember that he is an elected official, so it is important that he tell his constituents what he thinks. Right? And that is a form of protected speech. Um, if he were to draft a policy for his office requiring line attorneys in his office, people who work for him, to, pre to prejudge cases um, before they arrive in his office, that would be a separate problem. Um, but there's a very good argument that is not what happened here. And that's really what the crux of this is about, right? Did Andrew Warren actually do anything that would suggest he's not fulfilling the obligations of his office? And I think the answer is certainly not yet. And there's a really good debate about whether or not he ever would have done anything that would have constituted a um, violation of his legal obligations as state attorney. So I'm hearing you say not yet. He has done nothing wrong yet. So um, just on my basic knowledge of law, it almost sounds like um, case closed. Obviously, it's not that simple, but why don't you walk us through um, what steps the judge would have to take in his mind to to um, go from the, the Andrew Warren has done nothing wrong yet to actually siding with the governor? Well, I think what well, I think what the judge in this case would have to do is find difficulty with the First Amendment claim specifically. So the reason, or and I'm not um, privy to any inside information about what um, State Attorney Warren's team was thinking, right? But one of the reasons to bring a First Amendment claim is that it puts the case in federal court, which would remove it from the federal, prevent it or exclude it from the Florida state courts. And of course, the Florida Supreme Court is um, dominated by a supermajority of DeSantis appointees. I'm not suggest. I don't know for sure that's what happened in terms of decision making, but the First Amendment claim has that advantage for State Attorney Warren. The First Amendment claim is harder to prove than a simple violation of the Florida Constitution. Right. So the Florida Constitution sets a very high bar for a governor to suspend an elected official. I think it's very, very hard to make an argument that Governor DeSantis met that bar in suspending Andrew Warren for signing a letter. Um, but in the Fed and federal court, um, State Attorney Warren is going to have to prove something slightly um, beyond that. He's going to have to prove that he was suspended because of what he said. And that's a harder um, standard to meet because it requires sort of an extra level of intent on behalf of the decision maker. Our guest is Louis Varelli, a professor of constitutional law at Stetson University College of Law in Pinellas County. And you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe on 88.5 FM. It's 1033 in the morning. We have already established that Governor DeSantis asked to not have to testify and did not testify during the trial. But several of his colleagues and his his appointees, I guess, or his his uh, the people that worked for him did testify. 
And we read reports about testimony from Larry Keefe, who was an advisor to DeSantis, and he was called Florida's public safety czar. A year ago, DeSantis asked Keefe if any state attorneys were not following the law. And so during the trial, we heard about details of the ad hoc inquiry, and the judge pressed Keefe about whether he had talked to mainly Republicans. So it sounds like there was a, at least a hint of, of a suggestion of, or a perception that this was a one-sided inquiry that the governor's office did. Might that sway the judge? It could certainly go to this intent question we've been talking about, right? So the question is going to be, why did the governor suspend Andrew Warren? Andrew Warren's claim is because of what I said, because of my ideology and my pol- and my positions about certain laws, my personal beliefs about them. Um, and the governor is going to say, no, it's because you didn't do your job, right? An inquiry that is overwhelmingly partisan suggests that ideology might be a driving factor in a way that a more neutral, objective inquiry might not. That's sort of one of the things the judge is going to have to consider. And so getting to that question of ideology versus actions, uh, the Keefe, this public safety czar who worked for DeSantis, said by signing the joint statements, Andrew Warren was effectively nullifying the law. So is that an action by signing the statements? And is that nullifying the law? Are there other cases that might give us some insight here? Well, I think it is, it's a very difficult leap to say that signing a letter is less like speech than it is like nullifying Florida law. First of all, one of the things that, um, is in that letter was not a matter of Florida law at the time, the, um, access to medical care by transgender individuals, right? There was no Florida law about that topic, even though it's mentioned in the letter. Um, and the letter multiple times mentions exercising discretion which is a prosecutor's prerogative. So if we're trying to decide whether a letter is speech or conduct, right, that's a difficult, it's difficult to argue that it is more conduct than speech. As for nullifying the law, right, um, State Attorney Warren hasn't done anything yet. So it's difficult to say that he is ignoring the law. In terms of other cases, the closest example we have was State Attorney Aramis Ayala in Orlando, who made a statement and had made decisions not to prosecute capital cases, was firm about that. Capital cases were um, legally part of her discretion. She said she said something much more clear, much clearer, excuse me, than uh, State Attorney Warren said. And she was not suspended from office. A collection of cases were removed from her purview and were assigned to another um, state attorney to oversee them. That's the closest we have, um, I think, analog to this case. And that was during Governor Rick Scott's administration, not during Governor DeSantis's administration. Correct. And my understanding is at the time, relatively unprecedented, even on the grounds that Governor Scott um, pursued, let alone what Governor DeSantis has done here. Our guest is Louis Varelli, a professor of constitutional law at Stetson University College of Law. And we're talking about Andrew Warren versus Ron DeSantis. The three-day trial happened last week in Tallahassee. Uh, Stetson, uh, sorry, uh, Andrew Warren was suspended, that is, by Governor Ron DeSantis back in August, and he is suing on First Amendment grounds to get his job back. So this public safety czar that we've been talking about who worked for Ron DeSantis and was trying to get to the bottom of whether any prosecutors in Florida were breaking the law in DeSantis's words or in Keefe's words said that Warren was creating an environment of lawlessness chaos in presumably in Hillsborough County by by signing these letters and and uh, agreeing to use prosec- prosecutorial discretion or not prosecuting these uh, abortion crimes or these things that weren't even crimes yet having to do with uh, operations for transgender people 
So the residents of Hillsboro all through this time were experiencing this environment of lawlessness and chaos that the governor's office was describing, but they still reelected Warren. Will the judge take that into account? I think that's actually the crux of this case. And that's, I think, maybe the most important thing for um, your listeners to understand, right? Andrew Warren does not and never has worked for Governor DeSantis. There are a lot of officials in the state of Florida who do work for Governor DeSantis, but state attorneys are not one of them. And the reason we know that is because they are elected. And an election, being an elected official, right, winning an election, um, comes with it a series of obligations and responsibilities that are unique to that individual and local to those constituents. It is up to the voters of Hillsborough to decide whether the environment created by Andrew Warren is acceptable to them, and they thought it was. If what this amounts to is the governor's office thinking that Andrew Warren is not doing his job the way they would prefer him to, that is unquestionably not grounds for suspension. And that is, in my view, the best version of their argument, the closest they can come to finding any sort of malfeasance um, by Andrew Warren would be to say, well, we think he should be doing things differently. But that's the nature of prosecutorial discretion. When we, if I exceed the speed limit on my way to work, which unfortunately I do regularly, it is up to the police officer I pass to decide whether I'm going to be pulled over that day. Failing to pull me over is not nullifying the law. Deciding in advance that people in that, in their mind, that people let speeding less than 10 miles an hour are less likely to be pulled over or probably should not be pulled over in favor of focusing on people going 20 miles over the limit is also not nullifying the law. Those are decisions that prosecutors and law enforcement make all the time. And to be clear, that discretion is in the Florida Constitution. The Florida Constitution grants prosecutorial discretion to state attorneys. So the elected nature of this, the prosecutorial discretion nature of this, make the decision by Governor DeSantis a really extreme remedy to a problem that certainly has not occurred yet, but likely doesn't exist at all. And I think it's important that we understand that dynamic. I want to remind people that we're speaking with Louis Varelli, a professor of constitutional law at Stetson University College of Law in Gulfport. And this is WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're talking about Warren versus DeSantis. We have someone from the area code 941 that writes in, is it not a prosecutor's responsibility to uphold respect for the law? Don't they swear an oath to do this? If a prosecutor states that there are some laws he will respect and others that he won't, what kind of example does that set for the people? So, Professor Varelli, how would you respond? Well, and as a general matter, of course, the comment is um, is correct and thoughtful, right, and, uh, and insightful. Yes, prosecutors enforce the law. Um, but prosecutorial discretion is, has always been and always, and I mean for centuries, in American in American law and its um, and its ancestry, right, and, and British common law has always been um, an important part of the job, right? It is not possible to enforce every law to its fullest. Otherwise, we do not have the resources to do that, and judgment calls are ne- are necessary. See my example about speeding, right? Um, what Andrew Warren said, if it amounted to him refusing all abortion prosecutions in in his district, in his county, there would be an argument that he was neglecting his duty. He has not done that. He signed a letter suggesting that the law in Florida is unconstitutional. To be clear, the 15-week ban on abortion is currently unconstitutional, right? It's not unconstitutional under the federal constitution because the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. But under existing Florida precedent, the Florida Supreme Court has a line of precedent saying that the rights to abortion in Florida exceed those granted in Roe v. Wade, right? So as it currently stands, until the Florida Supreme Court says otherwise, 
Andrew Warren is correct. A 15-week ban on, bo- on abortion in Florida is unconstitutional. And making that kind of decision is, in fact, part of his job. Right. So for him to say, I'm not going to enforce an unconstitutional law until I hear otherwise is not a dereliction of duty. In fact, it's sort of a thoughtful way to let the courts um, to let let the law run its course through Florida constitutional law. It's also important to remember that it is necessary to make judgment calls. Right. If he were to act as if it was impossible to be prosecuted for an abortion crime in Florida, then we'd have a meaningful conversation about suspension. We are nowhere near that. Right. And Governor DeSantis doing this at this stage is at best premature. The Andrew Warren side, this is going to go, this question is going to go to the whole question of whether it's a First Amendment or an action that Andrew Warren was suspended for. His Warren side claims that his suspension was for his beliefs or his politics and not for anything he did wrong. And to use to bolster that case in court, it came up that the in the trial that the information that an early draft of the order suspending Warren mentioned the Democratic Party and mentioned George Soros, a donor to Democratic causes and to progressive causes. So um, does, does the fact that that draft was mentioning kind of political topics and maybe later on that was taken out of the, the executive order, could that play in, in, in have a play in the judge's decision? Sure. I mean, I think we have to be careful about how we interpret drafts of documents that are ultimately published in a different form. Um, but it all goes to the larger point, right? Is Andrew Warren's suspension really for a failure to do the job? And it has to be a profound failure under the Florida Constitution. It's not a matter of not being good at the job. Incompetence is a term that we see in this area of law at the federal and state level all the time. And it does not mean could be better at the job. It means completely incapable of doing it or refusing to doing it to do it in, t- in its entirety, basically. Um, if what we are going to have to determine is whether Governor DeSantis um, suspended Andrew Warren because of his viewpoints about certain laws and because they did not align with the governors. The, that draft may speak to that, right? but certainly isn't dispositive. There's going to be a lot of evidence that the judge is going to have to consider. And going forward on that uh, viewpoints point of view, uh, p- uh, point that you were making, Florida Politics reported that during the trial, DeSantis's staff was asked to define the term woke, and they testified during the trial that it's the belief that there are systematic injustices in U.S., and DeSantis doesn't believe there are systematic injustices in the U.S. is what they, is how Florida Politics is describing what happened at the trial when it comes to that. So does, so that further, I, I guess, would go to toward uh, making the point that it seems almost like that politics were at play more than actual whether an action was happening or not. If Governor DeSantis's position, of course, he didn't testify and he wasn't required to, the judge did not require him to. Um, So his, his, his non-testimony is not his fault in that regard. Um, But if in fact, the reason that Andrew Warren was suspended was because of his alleged wokeness, then that's absolutely not a standard for suspension. And again, this is not to defend Andrew Warren's view on the law. It doesn't matter whether I whether I or anyone agrees with Andrew Warren's view on the law. The question is, should the governor be able to suspend an elected official who is duly elected and by all accounts would be elected again and temporarily replace them with someone of the governor's choosing? I should also point out that, and again, I'm not a political scientist, but I think it's highly unlikely from everything I've read that the person chosen to serve in that position while Andrew Warren is suspended would not have been elected by the people of Hillsborough County. Um, they, um, as my understanding, people can correct me if I'm wrong, 
share very different views or have very different views than Andrew Warren and share those views largely with the governor. That is the quintessential violation of sort of the rights and obligations of an elected official to replace to not only suspend them, but to replace them with somebody who has an entirely different view than the one that the um, voters of that county supported. Our guest is Louis Varelli, professor of constitutional law at Stetson University College of Law. And you're listening to 88.5 FM WMNF Tampa. I'm Sean Canan, and this is WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. We have a, a someone who wrote in, Bubba wrote in, and uh, he's asking something that we, we may have touched on, but maybe uh, he turned tuned in late. So let's I'll ask that again, and you can respond, Professor Varelli. He says, if I recall correctly, DeSantis sent Keefe, that's his his czar, for on a fishing expedition looking for prosecutors who didn't jibe with his views. Would the judge take that into consideration? It seems like DeSantis was looking for a problem that didn't exist like the movie Minority Report. That's the email that came in from Bubba. Um. I think that goes to it's one of the themes we've been talking about, right? Which is the judge is going to be asked to determine why. Right? We don't always ask why in the law. Sometimes an outcome is enough to render something a legal violation. But when it comes to the First Amendment retaliation claim, it is why. Why did the governor suspend Andrew Warren? Evidence that the um, decision to suspend Andrew Warren was the product of a open-ended search looking for a particular kind or particular um, parties, prosecutors, um, of course, would be evidence of that, but wouldn't prove anything. Um, I'm not qualified to say whether that happened or not, um, but that would be evidence of this larger theme of why did the governor suspend Andrew Warren. Jeff writes in and, I, and says, I think it's a game. The governor makes an appeal to the Fox News crowd, nailing a Democrat, fighting crime, wokeism, liberal policies, etc. If Warren gets his job back, I would imagine DeSantis doesn't really care. It might even get Republicans more fired up and brought in DeSantis's appeal to that base. So none of those points have to do with the law, Professor Varelli, but I don't know. Is there anything in there that you'd like to, to uh, answer about? Just this, um, and I'm I'm not an expert in any of that, so I won't I won't comment on whether or not um, I think that's correct because I just don't know. I don't certainly don't know any better than the caller um, or the the commenter. But I would say that the notion or the perception that the governor may have behaved in that way is problematic for a constitutional democracy um, like Florida and like all of the states in the union and the country. When the, when the perception created by the chief executive, whether it's the president or the governor, is I am doing this for vengeful or ideological reasons. I am extending the understood and historical scope of my power, right? I'm pushing the boundaries of what I'm, what I'm empowered to do because of my views about somebody else, else's, um, particularly an elected official's choices about how to do their job. That creates a problem that weakens the democracy generally, right? Um, it weakens the value of elections. It weakens our confidence in the motivations and good faith of our public officials. Whether it's true or not, I think that's something that every governor should think about when they um, suspend elected officials. And I think that's why we don't see this very often or certainly hadn't seen it um, until recently. The judge has said that he won't rule until at least the middle of this month. And so um, right now we're left to wait and speculate perhaps about what might happen. So obviously we're speculating and we, uh, you know, 
we're just relying on our educated um, assumptions about what might happen. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about what might happen. Of course, we don't know for sure. So one possible outcome perhaps would be that the judge would find fault in some of the things that Warren did, like signing the statement, for example. But perhaps after doing that, the judge could also decide that because there weren't any cases that came to him, that DeSantis had no basis to suspend Warren. What do you think about that possible outcome? That certainly um, strikes me as a sensible possibility. The one caveat I'll add, though, is that the First Amendment claim complicates these things. And this is what I was talking about before, the difference between being in federal and state court. If this were just a matter of whether Governor DeSantis violated the Florida Constitution, then you could say, well, he did violate the Florida Constitution. He overreached his suspension power. Um, and the judge could include in a decision a comment about how this is unbecoming of a state attorney to sign a letter like that. But here, Andrew Warren's got to prove something else. He's got to prove that the purpose, the reason for his suspension was protected speech. So the judge is going to have to go beyond that and say, um, yes, Governor Sanders may or may not have violated the Florida Constitution, but he more importantly, violated Andrew Warren's First Amendment rights by punishing him for something he said on a matter of public importance, which would be consistent with his First Amendment rights. That's the interesting, the most interesting part legally to this case is the framework in which it comes to the court. So what do we know about previous cases or precedent that might give us a clue as to how the judge could decide? It's very difficult. We have very little. Um, And the First Amendment is very often um, done in sort of a case by case or context specific way, because of course, every speech act comes with its own terms. I think um, from my perspective, a really important part of this is the elected nature of Andrew Warren's office. And I can't say that enough. Um, At the federal level, law enforcement are not elected. The attorney general and United States attorneys are not elected. So this would be a very easy case. The president can fire those folks for any reason whatsoever. But we have an elected official like this. They part of their participation in the electoral process is to speak to their constituents and to take public positions so that we can be better informed when we choose them. So I think there's a much stronger case for the First Amendment because Andrew Warren was elected. And I think the judge will agree with me on that, whether he finds this to be a violation or not is, um, of course, something that I couldn't predict. And what would be the remedy if the judge does side with Andrew Warren and says, yes, your First Amendment rights were violated? Does that mean he would get his he could get his job back? Yes. My uh, my understanding is he'd be he, one of the remedies would be that he'd be reinstated. And it's, it's also important to remember um, that Andrew Warren has not been fired or removed. Removed is a, is a legal term that means no longer holding that position. That's not a possible choice for the governor. The governor um, under no circumstances has the power to remove. Only the Senate can do that. The governor suspended Andrew Warren. So I refer to him as State Attorney Warren, not to make a point, but to be accurate. He still is the state attorney. He's just not currently working as such. Um, Ms. Lopez is working as the state attorney, but she is not the new state attorney. There isn't a new one. He's suspended. Um, and that's something we need to keep in mind. So I think the the remedy would be if if, in fact, Andrew Warren were to win, And a win would look like him being reinstated. And you mentioned the Senate having being able to do that, meaning being able to remove Andrew Warren from office. You're I assume you're referring to the state Senate. Is that impeachment? It's not impeachment. He's not impeachable under Florida law, but it is it is the suspension process under the Florida Constitution. If the Senate has the ability to basically make a suspension permanent by agreeing with the governor. But the the Florida Senate also has a rule that says while there are pending legal challenges to a suspension, we will not make that decision. So the Senate 
um, the, the, the Senate wrote a letter saying they are holding their proceedings in abeyance until we get a court decision. And at that point, if, if Andrew Warren wins his challenge and is reinstated, then the Senate wouldn't have anything to act on. If he loses his challenge and is not reinstated, then maybe the Senate will go to the trouble of removing him, but it would be, um, I don't know, I don't know how, um, how much that would add in that he wouldn't be returning to the job anyway. Um, but for now, they're waiting, like the rest of us, to hear from the courts. Our guest is Louis Varelli, a professor of constitutional law at Stetson University College of Law in Gulfport. And we're talking about the case Andrew Warren versus Ron DeSantis, which went to trial for three days last week in federal court in Tallahassee. You're listening to WMNS Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. So since you're a constitutional law professor, I want to ask you about a non-Florida story right now that does have to do with the Constitution. Uh, everyone has heard that former President Trump, who was referring here to his lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him, wrote over the weekend, this is a quote from the former president, a massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles even those found in the Constitution. So as a constitutional law professor, what's your response to that, Professor Varelli? No, it doesn't. That's my short answer. Wrong, wrong, former President Trump. That's exactly what the Constitution does not permit, right? There is lots of rhetoric in America about Thomas Jefferson's famous phrase, the tree of liberty is watered from time to time with the blood of patriots. Um, that is fine, and that was relevant in 17. Um, 76 and 1789. That is not how a constitutional democracy functions, particularly one that does actually function the way ours currently does. The way to resolve claims of election fraud are judicial. They are legal and judicial. You go to the courts and an independent judiciary who cannot be fired or otherwise manipulated by the Congress or the president for that matter, um, because they serve for life, makes a decision about whether under the law, the election was valid. I think it was 70 federal judges, many of whom were appointed by President Trump at the time, upheld the outcome of the 2020 election. Not only is he wrong, but his claim that somehow this operates outside of the Constitution is not only wrong, but frankly, petrifying, right? If that were true, what he's talking about is real anarchy, where a someone who says something loud enough and believes something somehow is entitled to engage in extra legal activity. That is not the way this country operates, um, nor is it the way it's designed. Our guest is Louis Farelli, a professor of constitutional law at Stetson University College of Law. We get an email here from Gary who writes, what in about, a, we're going back here to the Warren versus DeSantis trial. What in about an appeal of the judge's decision if he rules in Warren's favor, would it stay the decision and allow the suspension to continue if, uh, if Warren appeals after, DeSantis, if DeSantis wins and Warren appeals? Well, I think we'd have, we'd have that problem either way, potentially. And I call it a problem only, only because it would cause delay, right? Either way, I think there is a possibility that the 11th Circuit, which would be the court of the federal appellate court here, um, would stay the decision rendering their own decision, their own outcome. I actually think there's lots of good reasons to do that, right? So, um, if, for example, Andrew Warren were to win and the judge ordered reinstatement and then the case were appealed, um, and then Governor DeSantis won on appeal, you would have Andrew Warren resuming his office and then and then being removed again or suspended again. Excuse me, I've, I've made my own mistake. Um, so I think that's certainly a possibility. I also think it would be highly advisable for an appellate court to act quickly in a situation like that. Um, Andrew Warren's claim is really only as good as his term. So 
these decisions need to be made quickly so he can be reinstated if he were to if he were to prevail um, and still have an opportunity to do the job for a meaningful period of time. And presumably he could, there, there are scenarios that where he could run again in what it would be two, two more years. Uh, and I'm not, um, I'm not an expert in the term, in, in term limits for state attorneys. I, I frankly don't know if there is one um, for uh, state attorneys in Florida, but as long as there is not, then yes. Let me ask, oh, there was another question. Oh, no, the, the other question was exactly the same as the first one. So thank you to Rick and to Gary for asking about the appeals. If there is an appeal that would go, am I right, to the appeals, the federal appeals court in Atlanta? Correct, the 11th Circuit. That's our, right. Our guest is Professor Louis Varelli, a Stetson University College of Law, constitutional law expert. And I want to ask about another topic that's outside of Florida, but kind of has a Florida connection. And we really only have about a minute, minute and a half left. But Ari Berman wrote in Mother Jones Magazine yesterday about something called the independent state legislature theory and how right-wing groups set the stage for the Supreme Court to rig future elections. We heard a bit about it an hour ago on Democracy Now! Tomorrow, the Supreme Court will hear Moore versus Harper, and the outcome will determine whether state legislatures, many of which are heavily gerrymandered and disproportionately controlled by Republicans will be granted near King-like status to draw new redistricting maps maps, and pass restrictive voting laws with little or no review by state courts or other entities. So what does this have to do with Bush v. Gore in 2000 and, and perhaps even the redistricting that's happening in Florida, happened in Florida recently and is being challenged, Professor Varelli? Right. So the most recent example of this coming up was in Pennsylvania during the 2020 election where the Pennsylvania legislature sought to um, change some of the election rules, laws surrounding the 2020 election. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said that change would violate the Pennsylvania Constitution. So it was the Pennsylvania courts checking the Pennsylvania legislature in a way that is a very common dynamic between legislatures and courts at the state level and at the federal level for that matter. The argument in the independent state legislature doctrine is that the U.S. Constitution says that the rules for electing basically federal officials shall be set by the legislature of the states. And it uses the word legislature. And the argument is that what that really means is only the legislature. In other words, when setting federal election rules, state legislatures can make decisions independent of their own state constitutions. That is a really dramatic position to take. And what makes it particularly dramatic is that we never let legislatures operate outside of their own constitutions because the constitution is what created the legislature in the first place. Right. So what would the result of this in Moore v. Harper, if North Carolina were to win, it would be to say that the North Carolina legislature can make rules, even if they violate their own state constitution. And and their state court judges couldn't do anything about it. Why does gerrymand? Why is that relevant to gerrymandering? Because if you've already drawn districts in a way that perpetuate one's party's success, that party can act without any checks on them internally and perpetuate that success indefinitely. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Professor Varelli. Thank you for having me. Louis Varelli is a professor of constitutional law at Stetson University College of Law in Gulfport. And you can watch this full interview beginning this afternoon on our website, WMNF.org. I want to thank our phone screener, John Dunn. You've been listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. Thank you to everyone who donated during our recent membership drive. In this time slot tomorrow, Shelley will host Midpoint. Next up is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. Their topic is the history of Tampa's signature sandwich, the Cuban sandwich. That's coming up after NPR headlines. You're listening to WMNF Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, and Lakeland. Thanks so much for listening to 88.5 FM. 